This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ National, presented by Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. Finally on Our Changing World tonight, come with me to Lake Ohau. Hidden away in the mud at the bottom of the lake lies a detailed climate history for the South Island, stretching right back to the last ice age more than 18,000 years ago. A team of drillers and scientists have set up a barge and a rig to extract sediment cores from the lake floor, and when I joined them last week, they had already successfully unearthed 40 metres of layered mud, or a window on a time when Lake Ohau was filled with ice. Here's Gavin Dunbar, a paleoclimate scientist at Victoria University, to explain why Lake Ohau is such an important place for climate science. Right now we're sitting at the end of the, the terminal moraines which mark the extent of the glacier during the last ice age 20 to 30,000 years ago and we're looking out across the, uh, the southeast end of Lake Ohau and during the ice age all of this basin would have been filled with ice uh, several hundreds of metres thick. So there would have been a big glacier in here? Very much so, and, and not only in this, this lake, but also Pukaki and Tekapo basins were also filled with, with very large glaciers during the Ice Age. How long ago are we talking about? Really, the, the ice reached its greatest extent perhaps twenty to 30,000 years ago, and, and we know it retreated very quickly from about 18,000 years ago. Uh, the reason we know that is because we can date the, the youngest of these end moraines uh, by looking at how long it's been exposed to sunlight um, and so there's a, a very clever technique that essentially looks at how much sun the rocks sitting on the moraines have been exposed to, sort of a, a sunburn meter if you like and we know that the, the moraines we're sitting on now, the youngest of, of these ones is about 17,900 years ago and if we go all the way up to the head of the lake, 15 or 20 kilometres away, the next uh, youngest one is 17,500 years and so we know that the ice retreated out of this lake basin extremely quickly at about that time. And it's that transition that you are interested in finding out what went on? Well, we're sort of interested in the whole period of time uh, since then. And, and so the climate change, if you like, was at its most dramatic at the end of the Ice Age when the, the planet was warming up and there was a massive retreat of ice all over the Southern Alps. And... What we, what we know lies underneath the lake now is a geological record of what that change was. So we know that the, the gravels we're sitting on now actually go right underneath the lake. But since the lake formed, um, mud's been brought in by the rivers and has been accumulating there every year for 17,500 years. And it's that combination of the, the resolution, the year-by-year the year record over such a long period of time that we're interested in, but also the changes in the environment that have occurred over not just the deglaciation part of it, but 
throughout the much more modern um, part of the, the sequence. And so really we're interested in, in the, the whole thing, if you like. To get to any of that history, you need a floating drill rig. And we're just looking out across the lake, and there she is. You built pretty much from scratch. Not you, but the team around you built pretty much from scratch a drill barge. How can you drill from the surface of a lake? Essentially, coring a little bit into a lake, getting four or five metres of mud from the bottom is, is a relatively cheap and easy thing, and it becomes progressively much more difficult and, and I have to say, more expensive the, the deeper down into the mud you want to go. And, and we looked around a few years ago for what sort of capability there was uh, New Zealand, or even more broadly than that, to do deep lake coring. And one of the difficulties is in, in the ocean you can you can put a rig on a, on a big ship and it's not really a problem, but to actually get a, a drill rig capable of drilling tens or even hundreds of metres uh, below the lake surface is not a trivial thing. And so Webster's Drilling custom-built a barge to mount one of their drill rigs on and we've been able to, to use the drilling tools that have been widely proven in the Ocean Drilling Program, a major science program that's been running for 40 years. So we have very similar coring technology on this, this barge. And I've got to say, she's, she's a real beauty. She floats really well, very stable, and we've so far been able to core down 40 metres before we hit the gravel. And we're looking to move it to a, a slightly deeper part of the lake where we hope to, to get an 80 metre thick record of environmental change since the last ice age. So I've come to visit the team just between the two drill sites. So how did you choose those sites? One of the, the things we're, we're really interested in is the environmental change um, since the last ice age. And it, it turns out that the southern part of New Zealand actually lies underneath a, the westerly wind belt, uh, a sort of a belt of winds that, that really rip around the southern hemisphere. And you, you can think of it, if you like, as a giant river in the sky bringing precipitation to continental land masses in the, in the southern hemisphere. But there's two really areas that are particularly impacted, and one is the southern part of New Zealand where the westerly winds interact with the southern Alps, and the other one is, is in uh, South America where they hit the Andes and produce a, an awful lot of rainfall on the western coasts of, of both those locations. And there's enough uh, of this precipitation spills over the Alps and, and fills up Lake Ohau. So what we're hoping is we can, we can decode the environmental signal that's embedded in the, in the bottom of the lake here in terms of how these westerly winds have really influenced rainfall in our, our region. And it matters because these westerly winds are changing and with it, the rainfall patterns over southern New Zealand will also change. And I guess what we're trying to do here is to, to provide a longer-term context of what kind of things cause these changes, how big is the natural variability in these changes, is what we're seeing today attributable solely to greenhouse gas warming, or is it part of a natural cycle? This, this is the kind of thing that we're really trying to decode. And it turns out that this lake... It would appear to be in a, in a very sensitive location to those processes. It has a couple of practical advantages too that um, the lake level, unlike Pukaki and Tekapo, is more or less at its natural level and the other two lakes were, were raised quite a bit for the hydro schemes. And also we have this little southeastern arm of the lake here which just is a little bit more sheltered from the, the howling northwesterly winds and, and that, that actually gives us the, the opportunity to get our, our barge out and drill. I guess the listeners can't see it, but she doesn't actually sit that high above the, the water line. So 
big waves are definitely out in terms of using this barge for, for coring. Lake Ohau is in a pretty unique and special location because it sits right at the edge of the westerly wind system, right at the northern boundary of the westerly winds. And, and we all know about the westerlies. We're standing here right now and it's blasting blasting us. And, and the westerlies have played such a role in New Zealanders' lives. They control a lot of our um, weather and ultimately our climate. So we're sitting right at the boundary of the westerlies here at Lake Ohau. And what we're really interested in, in knowing is how that wind system has, has evolved through time or moved or, or responded to, to large-scale features in the global climate system, things that have pushed the westerlies south or pushed them north. As those winds move, we'll, we'll sense that here. It's essentially like, a, it's like an anemometer in a sense, I guess, this location. It's a, it's, we're able to sense the wind and the changes in the wind as they, as they move north and south. So it's a spectacular location as we're being <laughs> we are hiding the from the wind here, yeah. it's, it's pretty uh, this is pretty so... obvious why we're here I think <laughs> so so the thing the things that we we think we can understand more by studying the sediments that accumulate here in Lake Ohau it's really the interplay between climate drivers from the tropics north of us and climate drivers from the south from from Antarctica we've heard much about El Nino La Nina or ENSO, El Nino Southern Oscillation, that climate phenomenon impacts us from the north. It comes from the tropics. From the south, from Antarctica, there's a, a climate phenomenon called the Southern Annular Mode or SAM, and it's a, essentially a change in, in uh, air pressure over, over the sea. And, and as, as the pressure gets higher over New Zealand and lower over um, Antarctica, uh, the, the position of the westerlies actually shifts. So, so we're sitting at a location that's being influenced by the tropics and influenced by Antarctica. We're essentially um, at the point where these two forces meet and have a battle, and the, and the battleground is the westerlies. So we're trying to understand, you know, at various times perhaps the tropics win and at other times Antarctica wins. And, and, and as those um, two climate phenomena change, um, it, it will ultimately affect our climate. There's a concern or an expectation based on models uh, that in our future the southern annular mode, the, the Antarctic climate feature, will trend towards a positive phase. And what that means is the westerly winds will actually migrate south. And if they migrate south, it tends to produce drier climate here in, in, in New Zealand. At least that's, that's what modern observations suggest to us. We want to know if we can find um, evidence from the past of periods of time or intervals of time where the southern annular mode was positive or negative. Did it in fact affect the westerlies? Did it in fact affect our climate? And we think we can determine that from uh, studying the sediments here in Lake Ohau. So local records giving us a, a global view, a signature of this inter-hemispheric battle between the tropics and the south. You've got the first side drill, so can you show me some of those drill course? Absolutely. Oh wow, that's refreshing in there. It's uh, four degrees in here, and the, the reason we keep it four degrees is for the, the preservation of the cores. What we don't want is um, algae and other nasties growing in them, and the easiest way to prevent that is to keep it cool and to keep it dark. And so this is the, the longer term storage of the cores will be in, in these conditions. Let's get out of the cold and have a look <laughs> next door. <laughs> Thanks. 
Right, come on in, squeeze in that way a bit because there's a few of you, it's only a small container. Can you show me a bit what the core looks like inside? So what we can see here is that the when it's split in half, you can see that there are these light and dark bands of, of mud. The light bands here actually represent the the inflow during the summertime and the dark bands represent the, the, the inflow and the mud coming in during the winter. And it's these layers that we can identify as coming in year by year by year and the thickness of the layers is usually in relation to how much rainfall or the number of large storms that have come in through the year. And we can see that going back all the way through the core and on the x-ray all the way through that 40 metre core that we've collected so far. So you have a 17,000 year plus a bit history of this place? Yes, we do. And then the key thing is if the, these layers are annual, we have it on a yearly record of environmental change through 17,000 years, which is quite special for anywhere in the world, but definitely for this area in the Southern Hemisphere. So rainfall would obviously be one of the things that you can more or less directly track with this. What else do you expect to see in it? Well, the core captures environmental change from the region uh, in, in its entirety. So other things we can see is past vegetation change. As the vegetation has evolved coming out of the last ice age, um, it, it went from being quite a grassy uh, shrubland landscape coming into what is the Holocene now around 10, 11,000 years ago where we see more forests coming in. The, the forest of this region initially was um, podocarp forests, include Totara, uh, Philocladus, um, at a number of these sort of hardy alpine sort of species as well. And then it shifted through into uh, beech forest um, later on, probably around uh, sort of three to 4,000 years ago. And after that we see some quite um, striking changes as humans entered the landscape. Um, early Polynesian, uh, there's uh, uh, the influence of fire and uh, clearance of forest because of that fire. And we see a change from the beach forest into grassland. How quick? Um, can you tell based me? on, that's another great thing with the core, because we can count the annual layers we can get an idea of how fast that change was. And our initial counts um, put that change at about 48 years. Um, 48 years, so 48 that's years. a short human lifespan. Really. It is. It's basically you know one or two generations of, of life, if you want to uh, look at that. And, yeah, it's, it's a rapid change in the landscape over a short period of time. So what do you see in the core? Do you literally see the charcoal from the fires or the change in pollen You see, bo You grass? see both in that. Um, the, the charcoal, a very important part, is that you see larger charcoal pieces in that core, and that represents that there is actually burning in the catchment, in the direct landscape, as opposed to just sort of the charcoal that would come from smoke. You also see the pollen from the beach, uh, and the grasslands and that change in there along with a few other things. There's another pollen that we look at which is from the bracken fern and that's very associated with human impact and fire in particular and we see large amounts of that coming in whenever there's a fire as well. So can you see the impact of the next settlement or colonisation? Yeah, that's another uh, area we see in the core is that the impact of European settlement in the valley and the increase in agriculture in the system as well. And the main thing we see that in is pollen again. Uh, we see the introduction of um, food plant species for, for the sheep. Sheep sorrel is, is one that's introduced early on. Um, and as well then it's followed by 
the introduction of pine trees in the landscape and then willow trees and things like that afterwards. They are markers within the core that we see as well and we can see those larger landscape changes through time. Can you distinguish between human impact and natural things and that perhaps the fires are an example for that? There would have been some wildfires that had nothing to do with people but obviously the burning of the landscape by people as well. You can do that uh, in these cores as well. Cores that have been taken from around the region from smaller lakes or peat bogs show that there is natural fires through the landscape over the last um, 17,000 years in this region, mainly uh, from the last 7,000 years onwards as you start to get more windier and, and extreme climate. So yep, those fires are initiated by lightning strikes and so on. They do occur. The main thing to distinguish them from human versus natural is the persistence of that fire and the persistence of the vegetation change after that fire event. The natural fires will cause charcoal in the core but the forest composition still stays the same whereas the human impact you see a big change in the forest species from beach to grassland and that's that's some of those indicators. Knowing all of this and we've talked about rainfall changes and the fires and the human impact is there any way of using that to look ahead in time? There is. Um, one, one example of this actually is uh, we can use these sediment cores and the annual deposition of the pollen in them to look at things like beach masting. Uh, the beach forest, they every um, three to four years, they put out a large amount of pollen, which is followed by a huge amount of seed production. And the seed production... Um, in this area now with, with rats and mice around that causes huge explosions in the populations of these mice and rats and when they eat all the seeds they go and eat the native flora and fauna and it's quite a large ecological uh, impact and, and that has to be managed. What we can try and do and what we can do is look back in time at the frequency of the beach masting and look at periods when the climate was slightly warmer as an indicator of what we might be going into with, with future climate change and see if that beach masting has increased or stayed the same and that can help us get a better idea of what we might need to do for management strategies in the future. So that's one example of the value of this type of record for ecological management and, and assessing environmental change for the future. One of the things we've noticed in our monitoring of the lake over the last four or five years is that when we get big flood events there's a disproportionate amount of mud brought into the lake and it seems to deposit a really thick layer that's quite distinctive in the geologic record and we can see one associated with a big flood in 2013 and there's another one um, a couple of decades earlier in the mid-90s that we can see as well and if we look back through the record we've analysed in detail the periodicity of these things seems to change and it's something we're still working on but we, we're hopeful that we can really look at the intensity and the frequency of these flood events and understand what the underlying causes, whether it's phases of El Nino, Enso, the southern annular mode connection to Antarctica and what role these larger climate systems play in the, in the flood frequency that we see here. And I guess looking forward, if we can understand that the influence of these systems may change one way or another. That might help us in terms of looking at the change in the frequency of these quite extreme events in future. So one of the benefits of the record that we've recovered here at Lake Ohau is that it, 
it essentially it extends our time series of climate. So we can measure rainfall, we can measure temperature, we can get a lot of detail about how the climate system works. Um, but we can only do that for the last 100 years at the most. So we've got this really detailed record that only spans a relatively short period of time. We can use that information to, to test our predictive models, our forecasting models um, that we're going to use to understand what will happen in the future. But it's only a short snapshot in time. It doesn't capture the full range of variability in the climate system. What the OHAL record provides is a longer-term, long-range hindcasting, essentially, a, 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 a data series that goes back further in time and will capture a lot more of the natural variability in the climate system. And if we can use that information then uh, to test the ability for the models to simulate those, those past changes, the variability in the system, and the, if the models are able to capture that variability, then we have a lot more confidence in those models pushing forward and using them for forecasting. So without this sort of detailed record from, from New Zealand, from the Ohau region, we don't have the ability to really thoroughly and robustly test those models. And that was Richard Levy, a paleoclimate scientist at GNS Science. You also heard from his colleague Marcus van der Goes and Gavin Dunbar, who's at Victoria University in Wellington. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kakite Anu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.